Welcome back to our third podcast in this series on intentionally living for Christ. My name is Alyssa Dunker, and I'm grateful you have joined me. Today, we are going to talk about how to live intentionally for Christ when we face temptation. I remember the day my obsession with sugar overpowered my ability to see what was right in front of me. I was 12 years old, and I found myself standing on top of the kitchen counter. I had carefully looked to the right and to the left. No one was coming. Feeling the cold countertop underneath my bare feet, I knew I was close to victory. I silently popped open the cabinet. I could see the metal jar on the top shelf and could taste the sweetness on my tongue before my hand reached the lid. I could also taste all those times my stepmom enjoyed that candy jar while I was standing in front of her. She never offered to share. I deserved what I was about to enjoy. My heart was racing, fearful that I would get caught, yet my confidence was greater than my concerns. I twisted the lid off, and just as my fingers grasped the cellophane wrapper, I lost control of my destiny. Put that down right now. I was caught. She was standing in the doorway, watching the entire time. Let's be honest. We face temptation every day. If we aren't aware of it, it's likely we are giving in more often than we know. The things that regularly tempt us may not be big, obvious things, but all temptation serves the same task, to entrap our hearts and turn us from worshiping God to worshiping something far less worthy. Do you remember that dinner out before the pandemic? You know, the one when, just as you took your first bite of the perfectly cooked entree, the waiter stopped by to ask how you're doing? He informed you that the chef had visited the Temple of Apollos earlier in the day. That was why the meat was so fresh. He personally saw to it that the animal was slaughtered and sacrificed to demons. So glad you're enjoying it. Let me know if you need anything else. As he casually walked away, your jaw dropped open, your knife and fork shaking in your hands. I'm guessing that dinner out doesn't ring a bell for you. If you haven't guessed, I've been studying 1 Corinthians, and one of the hardest things to understand is all these words about food sacrificed to idols. There are no temples connected to our local Aldi or Kroger. Because we can't culturally relate, we might skim the section of scripture and miss real help as we struggle with our own forms of temptation. Let's keep in mind the Corinthians' personal struggles as we consider some areas of weakness in our lives, some ways we are tempted to strike out on our own, to climb on top of the countertop, so to say, and dig into someone else's candy jar. It is essential to recognize our temptations, but victory comes as we learn to discern temptation's deceitful call to our hearts. And in response, we deliberately seek God's faithful provision to escape his trap. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul starts chapter 10 with a word connecting what he is about to say with what he has just been arguing. In chapter 10, 
Paul delves into the issue of food sacrificed to idols. In chapter 9, he employs an analogy of an athletic race. He challenges the Corinthians to discipline themselves, to run and train and do whatever they must to win the prize that lasts forever. His point? He wants them to withstand temptations and avoid disqualification. Then Paul makes an interesting choice. Writing to a group of primarily non-Jewish people, Paul weaves together a story from Jewish history. Again, he is saying temptation is real and they don't have to give in to it. The Israelites were a people uniquely visited by God. In a remarkable story of deliverance, God heard the cries of his people and freed them from their slave-owning captors. He protected and guided them with a cloud made of his own glory. A vast sea in front of them, he separated the waters so they could escape massacre. Along the journey, he provided for their physical needs out of his own divine essence. Christ himself was with them and gave them food to eat and water to drink. It wasn't a mighty army that had arrived to set them free. It was a mighty God. Paul uses words to say the Israelites were part of God's community. He refers to baptism and to images we associate with communion, the Lord's Supper, to prove his point. But even God's exceptional interventions wouldn't prevent their hearts from wandering after their own desires. And this led to one enormous consequence. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember that Sunday school story? Twelve spies go into Canaan to see what they can see. What ten of the men forgot is what they had already seen. They were there when frogs and gnats and flies enveloped Egypt. They were there when the walls of the sea divided. They were also there when God heard their stomach pangs and provided food from heaven. I could spend 10 minutes describing God's care for his people, but no matter what he did, it wasn't enough. It was never enough. I could spend another 10 minutes telling you how God has provided for me, but it hasn't been enough. It's never enough. We humans are demanding creatures and we're typically hungry for more. But back to the Sunday school story. The 12 spies return and only two say, do not fear, the Lord is with us. The rest of them say, wouldn't it have been better to die in Egypt? Or how about this wilderness, let's die here. I'd rather die than follow this worthless God or this incompetent Moses. Let's choose a new leader and go back to slavery. And hey, let's kill Moses and his family while we're at it. The rebellious Israelites weren't thinking clearly. Why exactly were the Egyptians going to welcome back their former slaves after Pharaoh? Pharaoh's army and all of the firstborn were destroyed? Slavery would not have been an option. That bridge was burned. There was no returning to Egypt. They were complaining about their situation, but their alternative wasn't even an option. Last March, our family was hunkered down in our home overseas, thinking we would wait out the pandemic when we got a call that would change our lives. We were told we must evacuate our home and return to the U.S. Because we had already scheduled a long upcoming visit to the U.S., we had to permanently leave whatever didn't fit our suitcases. Our home, gone. 
Our furniture, gone. Our dogs, gone. Not to mention all the abruptly interrupted relationships. God carried us and walked with us through that pain. But just recently, I cried heavily and told my husband that I just wanted to go home, to a home that no longer exists. Do you have times in your life when you wish you could return to something else, times that appear better to you than your current circumstances? When I was a child, it was acceptable to fantasize about inventing a time machine. But I'm no longer a child, and God asks me, and he asks you, to be present wherever we are today, to face what is right in front of us. There is room in God's economy for grief and lament. But if our hearts get stuck wanting to go back to what was our Egypt, to that last place that was better, or to the time when our children were a specific age, or we looked a certain way, or when so-and-so valued our opinion, or just one step before we made that bad decision, we participate in a dangerous game. If we let our hearts roam free, they may not know the end of their discontent. We clean up the story of the 12 spies and don't emphasize that all the people over 20 years old, minus Joshua and Caleb, would have their corpses scattered throughout the desert. If they were running a race, only two people got the prize. Paul says that God was not pleased with most of the Israelites. According to Numbers 14, the Lord was not pleased with most of them because in their hearts, they were rebellious. They did not trust God, and they did not want for themselves what God wanted for them. They were afraid and lacked belief. Paul continues from verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. What did Israel do in the desert that Paul wants us to remember? It says in verse 6 that they craved evil. In January, I read about a connection between Alzheimer's disease and sugar intake. As a result, I attempted to stop eating sugar, but I first had to get sweets out of my house to free myself from their control. I'm still that same person who stood on top of a kitchen counter to steal someone else's candy, so this has not been an easy battle. After some significant success, my daughter came home for the weekend from college, and we bought her ice cream. I didn't even want to eat it. Total victory. Then the day after she left, I'm out for a walk, and suddenly I taste it. Cold, sweet ice cream. Immediately, I craved it. And then I made a plan. The first thing I did when I got home was open the freezer. I had committed not to eat sugar, but once the craving hit, an opportunity presented itself, I made and executed a new plan. The Israelites made and executed a new plan as well. And so doing, they committed idolatry. Remember the golden calf? 
Moses wasn't gone very long when the twelve tribes said to Aaron, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Aaron agreed. He told them to hand over their gold jewelry, which undoubtedly had belonged to their slave owners. After he melted the gold and made the idol, the people said, Look, these are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. The golden calf split the Red Sea? That's what they were saying. The story gets worse. Seeing how pleased the people were, Aaron made an altar before this calf and told the people, Tomorrow we'll have a party for the Lord. He actually used the covenant name for God, the very name God gave to Moses when he appeared in the burning bush. I am who I am, the self-existent, eternal one. I am Yahweh. Aaron called the golden calf Yahweh. The fact that Aaron would not only live through this event, but be named God's high priest is evidence to me that Yahweh is a merciful God. In the desert, the Israelites committed sexual immorality that involved demonic worship. They tested Christ. They grumbled and complained. They even loathed God's cooking. What was the heart of their idolatry? Was it just lust? I don't think it's as simple as that. It seems much of what they did was birthed from fear. Much of what they did expressed their passion for comfort and control. Much of what they did spouted up from arrogance that believed that they knew how things should really be done. They wanted a God they could see and who kept their schedule. They believed they deserved more than what they were getting. Idolatry is essentially worshiping the wrong thing. Paul was concerned that the Corinthians would be swayed by their culture, and as they ate meat from pagan temples, they would be pulled away from Jesus. Idols ask far less of us than the God of the universe. God didn't tolerate Israel's idolatry. God would not tolerate the Corinthians' worship of false gods. My friend, God's view on idolatry has not changed. We were created to worship, so we were always doing one of three things. We are either one, worshiping God, two, worshiping something else or someone else, or three, worshiping ourselves. Not giving proper worship to God is stealing what is rightly his. God calls this idolatry. Many times, the things that are most on our hearts are good desires. But even good desires can become controlling, ruling desires if we want them more than we want to honor God. Consider some of your unanswered prayers. There are things you want, and you have felt comfortable enough to ask God to give them to you. So likely, in and of themselves, the things aren't sinful. But what happens in our hearts when we don't get what we really want? It's possible for that thing we want to become a thing that we must have. And when that happens, we have shifted worship from God to worship of something else. Let me tell you a personal story and see if you can hear what was ruling my heart. I was struggling with insomnia. Sleep came late, but early in the morning, my phone rang. One of my employees had experienced a family tragedy. I had 15 guests in my house and quickly needed to make alternative plans. I called my husband and asked him to implement what I thought was a good solution, but as it wasn't his area of expertise, he asked if I would take care of it instead. I immediately became irritated. Why can't he just understand my need? And seeing that he wasn't going to do what I wanted, I became angrier and more demanding. 
what was ruling my heart? Myself. I was upset that someone else wasn't doing what I wanted, the way that I wanted it done, and in my timing. I had become the center of the world, and others needed to appropriately accommodate me. When we compromise loving God and loving people, we are choosing our own way. When we choose our own way, we are essentially proclaiming, I am the ruler, I am God. We are no different from Aaron referring to the golden calf as Yahweh. How grateful we should be for God's mercy. If you can, grab a piece of paper. If you're moving around right now, try to picture the image I describe. Draw a chair with a crown on top. This represents God's throne. Then draw several steps descending from the throne. Now think of some things that really matter to you. Think about some of your desires. Even those good desires, such as respect, love, justice, success, acceptance. What is it that you want? Who or what situation isn't giving it to you? What causes fear or worry? What makes you angry? Be tangible. Don't just acknowledge that you got angry this week. What weren't you getting that led to the anger? Take a few of the problems, people, or emotions that are bothering you and place them on different steps. Place the things that are bigger battles in your heart closer to the throne. Put those desires of situations that seem more under control further away from the throne. As our desires begin to control us, they get out of order and kick God off his throne and become ruling desires. Our desires become in charge of our hearts. The desires we crave, even the good ones, can serve as our functional gods. Verses 11 and 12 say, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If Paul could write a letter to you today, I'm sure he would be hopeful for you because he was hopeful for the Corinthians. When our hearts are tempted to worship things that are not God, there is a way of escape. You have likely heard that experience is the best teacher. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 11, it is much better to learn from other people's past sins than to do them yourself. Because we are in the time when the end of the ages has come, the era where the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer, we can learn from others' examples and not by our own practice. Verse 12 is a stark warning. Israel had received so much from God's hand, yet they rebelled. Let us not think we are above such behavior. Paul is admonishing us to seriously consider and discern the direction of our hearts. Suppose we believe we stand immovable and can take the brunt force of temptation and not be knocked over. In that case, we should be very cautious, lest our pride conceal that we secretly want the thing that tempts us. Let's read verses 13 and 14. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now we get to the good news. When we are tempted, we can escape entrapment. How do we do this? 
First, we must recognize temptation as an issue of worship. When we give in to temptation, we are wanting and worshiping something other than God. When we remember only God deserves our worship, we approach our temptations with humility. Second, whatever temptation that is coming our way is not a fresh plot twist from the devil. No, what we're experiencing is common. The things that pull you away from God are no different from everyone else. So we don't have to hide who we really are for fear that no one else struggles like us. Such knowledge should serve to make us compassionately helpful to one another, especially in times of need. Third, there is a promise. God is faithful. It doesn't say that we are faithful, that we are strong, but God's character of faithfulness toward you in the middle of temptation guarantees that he won't allow you to be attempted beyond your strength to successfully overcome it. Fourth, whenever we experience temptation, there is a parallel provision from God. He will faithfully provide an escape from the things that seek to entrap our hearts. What is the way of escape? It could be changing our circumstances, it could be changing our thinking, but mostly it is changing the craving of our hearts. Overcoming temptation is primarily won by worshiping Christ on his throne. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus can help us when our hearts are weak, when our hearts are tempted by the craving for other gods. He has compassion toward us. It is the devil who tells us God is against you. Don't go to him with your troubles. No, humble Jesus was tempted just as you are, yet never stopped honoring his father. Our hearts are divided, and we want to both worship God and dethrone him at the same time. But Jesus will provide the escape route from our temptation. He is the way out. His throne is where you will find grace and mercy. Remember the chair with a crown that you drew? Any number of temptations can pull Christ off his rightful throne in your heart. But the Bible tells us that when we are tempted to worship something that is not God, Jesus provides us mercy and grace. Receiving this mercy and grace is how we live intentionally for Christ in our daily temptations. We acknowledge our weakness and seek God's faithful provision of an escape from things that seek to entrap our hearts. We allow our hearts to be captivated by the one who is much greater than the temporary pleasure temptation offers. The presence of Jesus provided for the Israelites in the desert Because God is faithful to us, how much more will he provide a way for us to remain faithful to him now that the end of the ages has come? I want to point out to you one last precious sentence from this passage. In verse 14, Paul calls the Corinthians his beloved, which is the same word the father called the son when he was baptized. It means my favorites, you who are esteemed and worthy of love. So my friend, You who are esteemed and worthy of love, run to safety when you are tempted to worship false gods. Flee to the throne of Christ, to the love of the one who gave everything for you. 
If you are listening and have questions about how to live for Christ, please reach out to someone you trust, to your small group facilitator, or you can contact me at reachtanzania at yahoo.com. Father, I pray that our hearts will be captured by your love. Show us the desires that drive us away from you and give us the faith to believe you are faithful and worthy of our worship. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week when we consider how to intentionally live for Christ by recognizing his good purposes in our lives. Mm -hmm.